0: Hello? Surprised to see so many ladies here. I thought you'd all be running, the spa ladies. Maybe you finished early and then straight to church. That's awesome. Um, we're starting a brand new series today Romans, the faith to quit. Too legit. I don't know where that's going to quit. Um, we are uh, this year as a leadership, we really felt in a group of preachers we really felt like we'd like to take the church through a journey in the book of Romans. And so, uh, we had two nights uh, earlier this year, which were uh, the first part of uh, Bible school. Um, and so, on uh, those nights, we, we covered chapters one, two, and three. We thought Romans chapter three is so important that we need uh, to uh, preach it to the whole church. And so, in this preaching series, we're going to be dealing with Romans chapter three, four, five, and six, and then continuing in our, our Bible school, which is on that cool piece of paper that you got given, Uh, the dates there, we're going to be dealing with Romans 7 8. uh, And by the end of the year, we're hoping that we'll get all the way through to Romans 16. It's quite ambitious. But uh, it's, Romans is a phenomenal book, and uh, it's this mighty, mighty theological book. It's, actually, it's a letter. It was written to a church. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, letters were extremely expensive to send because someone had to carry it. So obviously, like today, weights, the more it weighed, the more it costs to transport. Uh, and so the average letter was between 20 and 200 words. The book of Romans is 7,000 words long. The longest letter of the ancient world outside the book of Romans in the New Testament uh, is 4,000 words, I think by Cicero or someone. 7,000, nearly twice as long as the next longest letter from the ancient world that we have. It stands as this monument to Christian thought and Christian philosophical, thought. philosophical meaning like the way it shapes uh, the world and knowledge and those sorts of things, um, How important is truth? Now, I just want to back that up a little bit. Is how important is an idea? Because all truths are an idea, but not all ideas are true. But the reality is that every shift in history emerged around an idea. So personal salvation through personal faith, uh, really from the book of Romans, that's what we're going to get into today, um, gave rise to the, the Reformation and uh, the, the birth, really, I suppose, of the Western church, and which spread around the world. Uh, the idea, I'm going to say this in Latin because it makes me, it was just the way it is. Rex, Lex, versus Lex, Rex. So Rex is king, Lex is law. And in the ancient world, they said, actually, the king is law. And then there was a, a Scottish... Minister in the 17th century, 1644, wrote a paper which says actually the law is king, and even the king should be subject to the law. It's why we can impeach presidents these days because we believe that everyone should be subject to the law. The scientific method, which uh, when it comes to the material universe means that uh, data or information, truth, should be observed and tested, it gave rise to the Renaissance. Democracy, the idea that people should elect their own leaders and those leaders should be uh, accountable to the people. The idea of a free market economy, that the government should be uninvolved, or at least largely uninvolved. There might be aspects where they can uh, help um, keep it free, really. But this idea of free market economy, that economy should just function, willing seller, willing buyer, gave rise to Western capitalism. But here's the thing is not every idea is equal. Think about the difference between democracy and communism, okay? Both of them emerged at pretty much the same time, uh, and both people who held to either democracy or communism, uh, they believed that they wanted a better system of government to enable human thriving. And so in this massive social experiment, entire nations adopted one of these two ideas. Though, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Any communists here? I'm joking. Just checking some people in red. (laughs) Those that uh, adopted democratic ideas gave rise to the most prosperous, peaceful era in the history of the world, and those that adopted the ideas of communism gave way to tyrannical, failed, bankrupt states. I visited a museum to the effects of communism in East Berlin, what was East Berlin, and I saw the way they controlled every aspect of people's lives, because the state was supreme, and so individual rights and the idea of like freedom of speech, freedom to gather, those sorts of things that we hold as, as cornerstones of our democracy, free, free press, free even to think what you want to think. These things aren't ideals of communism, and when I say they gave rise to tyrannical, failed bankrupt states... Uh, communist states killed between 100 and 120 million of their own people. So how important is an idea? Because here's the thing, is that when communism and democracy were emerging, both people thought their idea was right, but it took over 100 years for communism to run its course and for people to realize actually it not, might not be the best system of government. See, the problem with ideas is not all ideas are true, and sometimes it takes 100 years to, to figure out whether our idea was true or not. So what are some ideas floating around in your head that right now are shaping the course of your life that maybe you only discover in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time whether they're true or not? Maybe you've got ideas about how to raise kids, but you'll only discover whether they're true, whether they work for kids when your kids are a teenager or a young adult. Maybe you've got ideas about the way working life should work and your finances, but you'll only discover when you retire, whether you write or not. Maybe you've got ideas about God and salvation, but you'll only discover on judgment day whether you're right or not. See, the problem with these things is that by the time you discover the ideas you had swimming around in your head were wrong, it's too late. And you've built an entire life on wrong ideas that in that sense are not true. So how do we, in true, in other words, they work with life and they enable us to prosper and thrive. So how do we know? How can we know? Whether the ideas we have floating in our head will lead to a prosperous, peaceful future or a future that is bankrupt, failed, and miserable. That's the subject of the Bible. What the Bible calls truth. Because God's truth always sets people up to prosper and thrive. Always. That's the notion of truth. There's no version of God's truth that, even when you know, sometimes you hear something in the beginning, you're like, ah, that's hard to hear. But as you adopt it and as you believe in it, as you make it part of your life, it gives way to freedom and joy. It wrestles the corners of your mouth from the anchors and enables you to smile. It changes your disposition, changes your outlook on life. The truth of God that sets us free. Jesus taught us you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And those of us who have wrestled with darkness, with tyrannical thoughts, anyone here wrestled with thoughts that you knew there was no laugh there, no joy there, no hope there? The more you thought, the more depressed you got. Anyone? Those of us who have wrestled with those thoughts and found the truth of the Scriptures, man, they mean everything to us. Because they have changed our lives, they've shaped our lives, they've set us free, and they've always meant everything to the people that found them. That's why they've been preached despite grave opposition, and people have given their lives for it, they'll die for that truth. And it's spread despite near constant persecution, because truth is powerful, and the greatest danger to truth is not political or physical violence, but the watering down of truth until truth is no longer truth, and then it just becomes another shackle to the human heart. Let me explain by way of example. In the 15th century, I'm going to get to Romans just now. I promise. But I want to give you context for why we give ourselves time in this church. You're really going, how do we dig into truth? And why is it important? In the 15th century, for hundreds of years, the Roman Catholic Church had laid claim to salvation and they taught a means of salvation that was no salvation at all. Now I don't want. To, if you're Catholic here or from a Catholic background, I'm not want to do any Catholic bashing. Many people I've met, so many people who come from a Catholic background, and we love having you here, and we really want to honour the wonderful parts of your tradition because there are wonderful parts there. And I also want to be sure of this: that the story of a church that preaches a salvation that's no salvation at all was not unique to the Roman Catholic Church of that period. It's been done by many churches and many preachers, myself included at various times but they were the church that was the loudest voice at that time in history in the 15th century and so it's theirs their voice that we hear from the pages of history and into the arms of this church a church that taught a means of salvation there was no salvation at all stepped a young man eager to please god and find his salvation he was a young man by the name of martin luther very good looking And you see, the Church of his day taught that salvation was through faith in Jesus Christ and good deeds. That people could be forgiven of their sins by placing their faith in Jesus, but they still, you know, we still do things that are wrong. And so then there had to be another means of sanctifying sinners, of making them good enough for God. And so there was this place between earth, where we died physically, and heaven, where we got to be with God, called purgatory. And in purgatory, you paid for the sins of your life and you were made holy and good enough to actually be with God. It was like a, like a purifying process in purgatory. And in purgatory, the means of purification was fire. Anyone want some purgatory? You can sign up afterwards. I mean, there's incentive not to go there, and so the church gave them incentive, and the Roman Catholic of that era said, hey, there's a number of ways you can uh, shorten your stay in purgatory. You can do lots of good things. Sometimes you could go on crusades. Said, oh, if you go fight for us in battles, you can shorten your stay. You're like, I don't like fighting that much, but purgatory sounds bad. Or you could give some money. Great way. The selling of indulgences. Man, you, you give a certain amount of money, then you get to buy a shorter stay in purgatory. Come here, up, come here in. You know, it's like, and so that was the, the the system of salvation on that day. And Luther stepped into this world and into this church, and he had this desire to give his life to God, and he wanted to know uh, intimacy with God and, and find Him. And so he dedicated his life to becoming a monk. His entire life would be in singular worship and service to God. Surely such an act would gain God's forgiveness and provide assurance of heaven. But after years and years and years of trying, years of trying to be a good Christian and to please God, the more he struggled, we found that he struggled with temptation and sin. And he saw within himself The kind of malice and greed that his own heart was capable of. And the harder he tried, the more he struggled. And into that dynamic came the salvation. There was no salvation at all. Faith plus works plus purgatory equals heaven. And so he found no peace, no freedom, no joy. All he found was a God that was angry with sinners. And the whole reason the church preached that God was angry with sinners is because they're trying to motivate sinners to change. But he had tried changing and failed, and so now all there was left for him was anger. In fact, Luther got to the point where he was so despondent that he wrote this, that as a young man, for years he had tried his hardest to be good enough for God, and he had failed again and again until he'd grown to the point where he actually hated God. This God that was a righteous God, that righteousness just showed him how unrighteous he was. This God that punished sinners, that he was lost through original sin, the sin of Adam. He was lost and smashed by the laws and commands of God, and he was threatened with God's righteous wrath. He grew to hate that God. Ever spend time in church and walked out feeling Guilty? condemned, not good enough, wanting a relationship with God but never feeling like you're actually ever good enough to be there. Ever been in that place? See, it's not just the Catholic Church of Luther's day that produced such despondency. In so many of our stories, mine included. You see, I started my Christian life with this desire to live a life for God, to have hope and to, to live a life that actually counted for Him. To bring him joy, to know intimacy, and after years and years of trying, after one failure, after the next, I hit the point of complete burnout. I was depressed and I was desperate. For I could not live without God, but it appeared that I could not live with him either. Into the darkness of that soul sprang the gospel. The light of the gospel into the darkness of Luther's heart sprang the life of the gospel. And I'm really praying that for many people here today, the light of the gospel will spring into your heart. And you find a salvation that is really salvation. And that truth for Luther was found in the book of Romans. And as Luther found it, he wrote this When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open to me, and I walked through. And he continued to risk his life year after year after year to preach the salvation that was really a salvation. What is that truth? Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Just so you know, I'm going to take you on a bit of a roller coaster this morning. I'm going to do my best to plunge you into the depths of despair. (laughs) Because no news is as good as news to a hungry heart. So if I'm successful, in 10 minutes, you're going to be so depressed. (laughs) But in 20, you're going to be happy. If you're planning on leaving early, you can get this on podcast. By Tuesday, the next two days will be hell. (laughs) Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and in the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. The gospel is the way of being made right with God without keeping the law, without your human behavior playing a part in it. But essentially, the one that Luther believed in and I believed in and so many of us believed in was a way of salvation where our behavior actually played a pretty big role. And even in our heads, we're like, no, it's mostly Jesus's grace, but like a little bit, surely, of my works. You see, we... There's only two ways of having a relationship with God. One that involves your works, even at some level, or one that involves His grace only. And we place our faith either in our works or in His grace, His work for us. If it's our works that we trust, we have a relationship with God, and we really believe that God sees our works and he sees what we do because, and because they're a reflection of our heart and they reflect who we are, God relates to that and he rewards us and he has a relationship with us based on us and our ability. You know, like God, we're actually trying quite hard to be Christians and God sees us. And if you're in this camp, you'll, you'll find yourself saying things like this, God sees my heart. Because what you really mean is, I know I'm not perfect, but God sees that I'm really trying to. Be perfect. God sees my heart and he sees the reflection. He believes the the best about us and that's why he has a relationship with us. That's why he gives us blessing and so on. There's just one little problem with this. What if we sin? You know what happens if we sin? Then we'll say, oh, I made a mistake. It wasn't my heart, I made a mistake, but the Bible doesn't give us that luxury. The Bible says, no, that is your heart. Let me explain Every moment of lust or every moment of self promotion and pride or desire for prosperity, which is not just to be generous to other people, but it's actually so that you can feel better about people, good about yourself, or even independent of your God. I don't need to trust God as much if I've got more money. Every one of those is a reflection of your heart. And if God sees the good stuff in our heart, surely He sees the bad too. And we might get it right for two weeks or two months or two years, but eventually we'll come to the point where we make a mistake. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not an innocent mistake. Actually, you are jealous of that person. You wanted what they had, their money, their gifts, their looks, their friends, their success. And the Bible says, do not covet. Don't desire what another person has. And if we're really honest with ourselves, the, one we, the reason we want those things is because we, we, we go, hey, it, it, my sense of value, surely I feel better about myself. My sense of value, my sense of worth, will be better if I have what they've got. And really what we do in that moment is, God, you're not really enough for me, but if I had more money, or I had more success, or I had, a, you know, like a, if I was married or I had those kids, if I had this, then it was, it's God plus this thing will make me happy. And so God, I'm really hoping you give me this thing because I want this thing, but not just you. You're not enough all by yourself. Well, maybe it's, uh, and the Bible says that idolatry, I mean, coveting is idolatry. You've made that thing, the God of your heart, or ever wanted a woman. But you couldn't have her in the flesh. So you just thought about her. And Jesus said that that's lust, and that you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And we see in ourselves in that moment that actually we don't love like God loves. But we want to possess we want to own, we want to control, and so we make an idol out of sex. Or maybe you're on this Christian journey, and, and, and you, actually you've grown a bit, and you've got a measure of breakthrough and a measure of success, and then one day you have this moment where you look at someone else, and you have this thought. If they were willing to work as hard as I did, they'd also have money. Man, if they studied the Bible like I had or went to the courses that I had or prayed like I had, they'd also be free. They'd also have their breakthrough. And in that moment, you fall into the trap of pride, which by the way, is what got the devil kicked out of heaven. So why not you? And oh my word, we realize that even when we do good things, all it does is poisons the well of our own hearts and makes us proud. Or maybe you've seen God bless other people and they got that job or they've got that car or they've got that marriage or they've got that kid and they've, God's anointed other people and used other people and now you're pretty sure that you've tried harder than those people. You've given more, you've been more faithful, you've prayed more prayers, you've studied harder, you've cried more tears and you realize in that moment that you think God's been unfair to you or unjust towards you, and in that sense, you actually think you're more righteous than God, like you should be His judge, or not He yours. See it turns out when we go down this road of salvation by what we do, and we see within ourselves the very reason why God can't bless us can't love us, can't forgive us. And we come to the same conclusion Paul does in this great chapter, in Romans chapter three. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Man, you thought... You could appease God's wrath and you could be okay with Him and you could go to heaven and you could have a relationship based on how well you are doing. And all it did is to show, did for you is show you how unworthy you very are. And now the very thing that you are looking to to save you has condemned you. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 23, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is, if the salvation you think you have there's no salvation at all. Look at the despair and the despondency of your heart. And man, that was my story. And so many of our story. Because as Paul says in Romans 3, 23, for everyone has sinned and fallen short into God's, of God's glorious standard. Depressed? Let's close and prayer. You can go ahead. <laughs> Come back next week. I'm joking. Fortunately for us, that is not the salvation of our God. And God gives us a salvation that is really salvation. But now God, and in our church, we drop the noun. We go, but God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, without your behavior and your motives of your heart and really if you're doing it well enough or not, without that, as was promised in the writings of Moses and in the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Amen? Amen. There's a way to be right with God without your performance being scrutinized. That moment of lust, that moment of greed, that moment of pride is forgotten and forgiven. It's irrelevant in this equation that we call salvation. That is the gospel. we made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the idea. Here's the truth as plain as day that changed the world, that changed Luther's life, that changed the history of the Western world, that changed the history of salvation, changed my life, and I'm trusting will change all of us too. I'm going to switch translations quick. Romans 3, 23, 25. For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Everyone say propitiation. No, say without the propitiation. I'm joking, it's impossible. (laughs) Propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I've got a green coke. Some of you guys will struggle to see it. Just believe that I'm writing on here, (laughs) because it's about faith. From this text, I want to raise five key words or key ideas that are truths. And you can gauge for yourself whether you're really believing in a salvation that's really a salvation, by the way your heart responds to these things. Firstly, and are justified... You know what justified means? Just as if I'd never sinned. Can't forget that, can you? The doctrine or the teaching of justification by faith stood at the heart of the Reformation. We're justified by faith, not what we do. We are justified. You know, the word justified or justification is a legal term meaning to acquit, the opposite of condemn. And this is where we get this title, The Faith to Quit. You know what condemn means? Condemn means the judge has looked at you and said, you did it, you're guilty, and you need to be punished. If you justify, the judge looks at you and says, you're righteous, you have no guilt, and there's no punishment. You're a righteous man. And so many of us spend our lives feeling wrong. Wrong about ourselves, wrong about the way we are, wrong about the things we do, and justification says, actually, you're right in God's sight. But I feel wrong. I don't care about your feelings. Because your feelings follow the truth that you believe. Who's the judge that justifies us? God. Not your mom, or your stepmom, or your mother in law. Not your friend, not your enemy. And not you. You don't make this decision for you. You are not your own judge. In fact, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. If God has justified you, if God has declared you righteous, you are righteous. Unless you want to argue with God. Be my guest. You'll lose. (laughs) Ever, Ever felt like you lived every day like actually you were in the courtroom awaiting the verdict? And every day you're in that courtroom again, and you come away and you go, Oh, did I pray enough today? But, like, did I mean it? Because, like, we, if we're honest, like, sometimes we're praying, and sometimes we're praying. But, did I mean it? Oh, I did that thing wrong, but I said sorry, but did I really mean it, like, enough? Did I pray enough? Do I do good enough? You know, like, you wake up in the morning and you manage to get out of bed without thinking anything bad, and then you you know, maybe your wife snappy with you, and you're like, Ha! You failed today, but I responded with grace. I'm doing well. And then you're like, ah, pride. Sorry, sorry, I really, sorry. I must love my wife. And then you, you think you're doing okay, and then all of a sudden you're in the traffic. You know what I'm talking about. My most unsanctified moments. I really, that's why I don't put stickers. You know, everyone's got the weird Durban. I don't and trust myself (laughs) and you go through day after day after day thinking like you're still on trial when your court case happened 2,000 years ago and Jesus Christ paid for you and God is the judge and he said you are justified you are righteous in my sight done that is a salvation that's really a salvation second point and are justified by his grace as a gift. Second big idea, grace. So here's the thing is that you either work for something or you receive it as a gift. If you, have you ever received a gift that you thought you had to do something for because it came with strings attached? That's not grace anymore. If there's strings attached, there's no Grace. You know, like, it's your birthday and Aunt Molly gives you that jumper she knitted. And she tells you how long it took her. She says, oh, it would be nice if you came to see me sometime. And you know that means two hours of Aunt Molly and her dry scons. talking about a cat. (laughs) Have you ever received a gift and you knew there were strings attached? How do you feel inside? Angsty. You got no peace. You don't know whether to say thank you or no thanks. Ever feel like that towards God? No peace. Angsty. I know you've done something for me, but I feel like I have to That's not grace. That's the salvation. There's no salvation at all. It's a gift or it's nothing at all. It's by grace or it's by nothing at all. Third thing, justified by his grace as a gift through thee. Everyone say it with me. Redemption. That is in Christ Jesus through Thee. Redemption. Redemption means deliverance from some evil by payment of a price. Slaves are delivered from their slavery, the great evil of their lives, by the payment of a price. And we were slaves to sin and were delivered from the great evil of our lives by the payment of a price, Christ Jesus himself. Ever felt like something inside of us is, is a little bit broken? Like some evil got hold of us, some lust, some pride, some greed, some coveting. God redeems us because Jesus Christ paid the price for us and delivered us from evil. And when you believe that, the gospel works in you. But what we do is we walk around thinking that we've got to pay the price. I want to be set free of this sin, and this thing's got a hold of me. So God, I promise I'm really, really sorry. And what you really mean is if I feel bad enough about myself, then God will set me free. The price I have to pay for freedom is feeling really bad. And then I read my Bible for 15 minutes a day, but oh, God, I'm upping it to 20. <laughs> not three chapters, Lord, four. Look at the price I'm paying. And then i say, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even gonna have a beer. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a nothing. That's the price I'm paying for the freedom from that thing. And God will look at you and says. Are you going to outdo Jesus? Because he paid the price. There's no price left for you to pay. You have the redemption through Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I've struggled with sin like everyone else in this space, but the times I've experienced the most phenomenal redemption is when I just trusted Jesus, said, Jesus, you said that you have redeemed me from sin. Amen. Number four. Oh, this is my favorite word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Everyone say forward. I'm joking. Propitiation. One, two, three. Ah, it's beautiful. And that one's obvious, so we're just going to move on. I love theology. I do. Because in theology... We have words like propitiation, but these words are ideas and they are truths that change our lives. That's why I love it. And also, sometimes you can throw out words like this in conversation and you look fancy. <laughs> Next time you're having a conversation with someone about salvation, just ask them, But do you believe in propitiation or expiation? <laughs> and whatever they say, just go, <laughs> <laughs> Very smart. And then repent of the pride later. Propitiation, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation is a technical term; it means the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Actually, exists in a lot of cultures to this day, where someone's harmed someone else, and through the payment of a gift, they settle their differences. There's, um, I spent some time in Israel. And uh, there, there's a group of people they called the Bedouin, and so many of their customs actually look like the customs of the Bible. It's amazing. And there, say you're driving through, and, uh, and then you knock over some guy's goat. The goat's dead. And you stop. Don't stop. But if you stop, <laughs> then you, the guy who owns the goat will come and have a conversation, and the elders of the village are still quite old school like that, and you have this conversation. They say, you killed my goat. You owe me $1,000. You're like, hey, that's sectic. Looks like a fence. look, the goat doesn't look so healthy. <laughs> I mean, it's got some gray, and it's, the one leg's a bit gammy. He's like, ah, oh, okay, $200. And you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until you arrive on a price. And let me tell you, this, isn't, this is a heated debate. This isn't like, oh, okay, no, so sorry. This is like a heated debate. You killed the man's goat, for crying out loud. But once you settle on a price, and you pay the price, he has no right to be angry anymore because the past is the past and the price has been paid. In fact, immediately after that, what they do is they get a meal out and you eat food together because in that culture, they'll never eat with someone that's an enemy. So what they're saying is actually we've been reconciled. It's where we get the last supper. Next time you take communion, that's where we get it from. This thing's done. It's a done deal. That's why we can eat together. You see, so often we think we're paying the price by what we give up, by how hard we pray, by how good we are, about how bad we feel about our sin. We think we're paying the price again and again and again. But the price for the wrath of God to be removed from your life was the blood of Jesus Christ. There isn't anything you can do to outdo that. He paid, he said, for the, for the anger that's on your life, the anger that's on your life because of your sin, God's anger towards you, I'm going to give my blood so you can be set free from that. I don't know how to say this any more simply. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, God is not angry with you, there is no punishment for your sins. There is nothing in this relationship that you don't have to look forward to. It's done. Last concept. An idea that is truth and a salvation that is really a salvation is whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by These things are yours by faith. It's just as if I'd never sinned. A free gift that never stops flowing. Redemption that the evil in my life has been paid for and done away with. And propitiation, there's no anger and no punishment for me. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. But here's the deal. If you're working for it, you can't receive it. Because hands that are working can't receive. When you receive something, we go like this. But when you're working, you've got the board and you've got the hammer. And you're hitting the nail and you're cutting the wood. And God's offering you a gift and you just hang on. My hands are busy because I'm trying to sort this thing out myself. And God says, if you're working, you can't receive it. You've got to put down the tools of your trade. Trying to be good enough for God and just go, thank you. That's all God wants from you. He's offering his salvation to you every single day. Thank you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for truth that we can build our lives on. It will produce fruits of righteousness and prosperity and fullness and richness. I thank you for a salvation that's really a salvation. It's really a salvation. We can spend the rest of our lives digging into it and only discover that it's more wonderful than we've thought, <laughs> first thought. And I just want to give people an opportunity here. If, you, if you're here today and you realize you've been trying to earn salvation or You want to give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you you haven't even been trying, but you know you're not a Christian and you want to give your life to Jesus. If that's what being a Christian is about, I want that. If that's you, can you just slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, just say, hey, that's me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's free. He's paid the price for you. You're saying, I want to receive that forgiveness right now. I'm just going to say a simple prayer. And if you put up your hand, you can pray this prayer in your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he paid the price for my sins and I'm forgiven because of his blood. Today, I receive your forgiveness. Come into my life. I want to know you. Father God, I thank you for those people. I thank you that you're the God that saves. You're the God that saves, and you've given us a salvation that's so powerful that's shaken and rocked the world and shaped and molded us. In Jesus' name. and Father, I pray your blessing over every person here today. May they know the truth of your gospel. And all those people said, Amen. amen.